Welcome to the Beltline Church of Christ podcast. We're so glad you found us. Please take a second and hit the subscribe button so that you can be notified of these weekly podcasts. Most of all, we hope this podcast will help you take your next step with Jesus. If you want to know more about us, you can visit us at www.beltlinechurchofchrist.org. Here's today's lesson. Let's dive in. we got a lot to cover today, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to be opening to Luke the 10th chapter. And I just want to start by asking this question. How do you feel when you see this sign? <laughs> Maybe you're driving on your way to work, and boom, there it is. Maybe you're trying to get home from work, and boom, there it is. What are you, what are you feeling when you see a sign like that? I don't think there's very many of us here today who would say, oh goody, I get to take a detour. Instead, if you're anything like me, you might start to feel a little bit anxious because you're not sure where the detour will take you. Or number two, you might feel a little frustrated because you are pressed for time and this detour is going to mess up your busy schedule. But what if? What if this morning you were driving and you saw two roads, one that said detour ahead and the other that said take your usual route, and it was completely your choice as to which route you could or would take. Now, you would probably take your usual route if you had to choose, especially if you knew that the detour was going to cost you time, was going to cost you money, and it was going to cost you personal frustration, wouldn't you? Now, today, we're going to talk a little bit about detours, uh, divine detours. See, I'm not necessarily interested in what you might do when you're encountering a sign like this when you're driving, but I am concerned about what happens when we come across a detour on uh, the highway of life. I want to talk about life detours this morning, because sometimes detours come at you, and there is absolutely nothing you can do about it. There is nothing you can do about it. Uh, maybe it's a sickness. Maybe it's a layoff from your job. Maybe it's a spouse that walks out on your marriage. You can't do anything about it. But then there are those other times in life when you have a choice. You have a choice to get off of your normal path. You have a choice to take a detour, a detour that can help someone. And so the question is, are you the type of person who would take a detour on your road of life? Would you, would you take your usual route or would you take the opportunity to take a detour instead? We're going to look in the Bible today at someone Jesus talks about who decided to take a detour on his road of life. You've probably heard of him before. In fact, uh, this story we're going to look at today is one of the most loved short stories that Jesus ever tells. It's one of his most famous parables that we come in contact with in Scripture. It is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's found in Luke chapter 10, and we're going to begin reading right now in verse 25. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Here's what it says, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. 
Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. If you underline in your Bible, I think verse 28, that last part there is pretty powerful, pretty significant. Do this and you will live. You see, sometime during Jesus' Judean part of his ministry, he encounters this person that we come across here in Luke chapter 10. He's called an expert in the law. The Greek word for that is nomikos. He's a nomikos. He's an expert. And you need to know that the people of his day and time would have highly respected this nomikos, this expert in the law. They were community leaders and they were professional interpreters of the law of Moses. And they had at least three areas of, uh, of, of, of work, I guess you could say. If you got an opportunity to watch our five-minute Friday, then you've probably seen some of this already. But three areas of professional duty. First, the nomikos, the expert in the law, explained the requirement of the law to ordinary people. That was their first job. Second, they kept alive the memory of past leaders like the prophets. These experts in the law were very, very high on the oral traditions that were passed down from the greatest thinkers of the day. And that's kind of what they did. They would keep those special teachers' uh, teachings alive. And thirdly, they trained others in knowledge of the law. And it's in this encounter between Jesus and this lawyer that we read this lawyer had an underlying motive to his asking Jesus this question. Did you catch his motive when we were reading in verses 25 through verse 28? His method or his motive, excuse me, was to test Jesus. This expert called Jesus a teacher, but it seems he was trying to give the teacher a test. That's what he was trying to do. This popular schooled lawyer was testing this popular uh, but unofficial teacher to see if he could expose to the crowd that Jesus couldn't handle a tough theological question. And we see here in these first three verses that Jesus doesn't go for it. He, uh, since he was a teacher, he gave the test back to this expert in the law. Jesus simply asked him, uh, what, what is written in the law? How do you read it? You want to know how to have eternal life? What does the scripture say, right? And so the expert says to him, okay, well, uh, let me show off my theological sophistication here. You want to have eternal life? Well, the law says you got to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you got to love your neighbor as yourself. He does a great job answering the question. He quotes the Shema from Deuteronomy 6, and he quotes Leviticus 19. He puts them together and says, you got to love God and you got to love others. That's how you inherit eternal life. And his answer shows a lot of insight. But Jesus reveals his authority over this nomikos by essentially giving him a grade. He says, hey, guess what? You got the answer right. You get an A plus for your answer, but Jesus doesn't stop there. This is why it's so important to underline verse 28, because he tells this guy, all right, you know the right answer here. Do this. Do it. Live it out, and you will live. Do this and you'll have eternal life. Do this and you will live. This man, it seems, was an expert in knowing, but he wasn't an expert in doing. And Jesus says something really, really important to us if we have ears to hear and eyes to see. What he says to us is knowing the right answer isn't enough. Not only do we need to know the right answer, we have to put that answer into practice. We, we might say it this way, it's not enough to walk 
talk the talk, we got to walk the walk. So how are you doing with that? How are you doing with that today? I, I came across a story recently of a guy by the name of Johnny Lechner. He was a 29-year-old who recently graduated from the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater after being a full-time student there for 12 years. Uh, Lechner said, I would have stayed longer if I could. I'm just broke. <laughs> I've got no more money. Trust me, if I had the money, I'd stay longer. The schedule's laid back. You're around all kinds of educated people, and we're all just broke college kids. It's not like the real world. Let me just say, if Johnny were my son, we're going to have a talk. <laughs> if Clay decides, you know, Dad, I think I'm just going to be a perpetual student for 12 years, he's going to do that on his own dime, not on mine. And if he were your son, if Johnny were your son, you'd probably advise him, listen, it's time to grow up, join the real world, and contribute to it, right? I mean, doesn't that make 12 years? When it comes to Christianity... There's a lot of people exactly like Johnny Lechner. We stay in our safe environment. We do our Bible studies. But we never go into the real world and put into practice what we know. Verse 29, he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In characteristic fashion, he wants to defend himself by narrowly defining a word. What is your definition of neighbor, he says. You see, the classic interpretation for neighbor by the Jews at this time meant one who was nearby, near in terms of race, near in terms of religion. That's my late and my neighbor. To the lawyer, love your neighbor meant love those who are like you. Love your own race, your own religion. And if you've done that, then you've done enough. You've fulfilled the law. And if a person doesn't fit those qualifications, then they aren't your neighbor and you don't have to mess with it. You don't have to worry about it anymore. So the Bible tells us that his first motive was to test Jesus, but in verse 29, there's a second motive as to why he asked his second question, who is my neighbor? He asked that to justify himself. Did you catch that? Now, the word justify normally means to be made right with God. When we read it throughout Scripture, that's typically the meaning, to be made right with God, justify, right? But that's not what it means here. This expert isn't trying to make himself right use himself. He's trying to excuse himself from following the command to love his neighbor, he knew it was the second greatest commandment, and yet he's trying to get out of it. He's like W.C. Fields. You guys know this story? He was on his deathbed, and he was reading furiously, frantically reading through his Bible, and someone said, what are you doing? He says, I'm looking for a loophole. Uh, that's what this guy's doing. He, he, wanted, uh, he wanted to know how little he could do. He was trying to justify his inaction. And that, what we just talked about in these four verses, is the key to understanding this parable that Jesus is about to tell. You see, the problem with the man's question, again, is that he was trying to justify himself from not loving his neighbor, even though he knew it was the second greatest commandment. You see, contrary to popular opinion, the parable of the Good Samaritan is not, it's not just about, uh, you know, 
though that the, the parables about excuses the parables about self-justification that often comes along uh, with our thought processes you see this isn't just the lawyer's problem here in Luke chapter 10 I, I know it's been my problem how about yours justifying inaction we often justify ourselves from not helping others. We tell ourselves that we can't help someone because it's too dangerous or too involved or too time-consuming or, or we don't have enough resources, enough money. And so Jesus, to this self-justification, decides to tell this story. It begins in verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance... A priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, and when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side as well. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Let me just stop for a second, and let's identify the key players in this parable that Jesus is telling. First, we have a group of robbers, right? Uh, they're, they're there trying to take advantage of whoever they can to get something for nothing. Second, we have this man who gets robbed and beaten so badly that he's left for dead on the side of the road. And finally, we have three other characters, three main characters, if you will. The first character is a priest. You see, the office of priest in Israel was of supreme importance, and it was of supreme rank. The priests represented the people before God, and they offered various sacrifices prescribed in the law. And when he sees this robber, he passes by on the other side. Maybe he's afraid that he'll be the next victim. Maybe he's afraid if the guy is dead and he touches him, he will make himself unclean. And so he avoids this situation at all costs. The next guy to come by is a Levite. Not quite as honored as the priests, but they were nonetheless also a privileged group in society, and they were responsible for the liturgy and the protecting of the temple. He too sees this guy and passes by on the other side. Now, you would expect, if you're sitting there listening to Jesus tell this story, that the next character would be a Jew, Right? A priest, a Levite, and a Jew. That, that, that would be normal. That's what, what would have been expected. But instead, Jesus throws them a curve. He's, he's a big surprise. He says, at first there was a priest, and then there was a Levite, and then there was a Samaritan. This is like saying, mama bear and papa bear and a skunk. <laughs> it just doesn't fit. It's just not what's supposed to happen in the storytelling in the minds of those who were there. Because we know that Samaritans are despised by Jews. But by using the Samaritan as a hero, Jesus is pointing out that it doesn't matter what you call yourself. It matters what you do. It doesn't matter what you call yourself. It matters what you do. Call yourself a Christian all day long. It doesn't matter what you call yourself. It matters what you do. Samaritan, verse 33, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to an innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. 
Jesus uses the example of the Good Samaritan to show us a person who looked past excuses and instead stops and does something. The Good Samaritan chose to take a detour off of his usual route. He decided to take a divine detour on this highway of life. And this detour was significant. I mean, there was a lot going on in this detour. Let's talk a little bit about this detour. This detour, number one, was a detour that took a significant risk. Many of you are familiar with the town of Telluride in southwestern Colorado. It's known for being a great resort town and a ski town, but it didn't always have that reputation. I don't know if you know this, but back in the Wild West days, the road to Telluride was so full of robbers and thieves that the town got its name from the contraction to Hell You Ride. Telluride, that's how it got its name. The road descends that Jesus talks about here, some 3,300 feet. It's a 17-mile road from Jerusalem to Jericho, and it had the same kind of reputation as Telluride. You know what it was called back in Jesus' day? The way of blood. The way of blood, because it descended so rapidly, and there was rocks all over, and robbers could easily hide. The roads were really, really dangerous. In fact, even if a person didn't have anything, sometimes they'd just get beat up and left naked. They'd just steal the clothes and go on. That seems to be what happens here. This man gets beaten up and left half dead. And when the Samaritan stops to help, he knew he was on a dangerous road. He could have even thought that the robbers might be nearby and that he was next But the good Samaritan didn't use risk as a justification not to act. Sometimes we do that, don't we? Sometimes we justify ourselves not helping someone in need because we're just afraid to take the risk. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying to you this morning. There are times when taking a risk is just plain dumb. (laughs) It's just not smart. Where I grew up, I I would drive from Yuma to Phoenix, and on that road, there was a state prison there, and there was always the sign that made me laugh every time I saw it, don't pick up hitchhikers. Hmm, I wonder why. And so if there's a guy out there hitchhiking in an orange jumpsuit, it's not really smart to pick that dude up. I'm just going to be honest. That's probably not what we need to do. But can we be honest? Our problem isn't that we take too many risks. It's that we don't take any at all. It's that we don't take any. Martin Luther King Jr. once said it this way, the first question the priest and Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But the good Samaritan reversed the question. He said, if I don't stop to help this man, what will happen to him? What question are you asking? If you're going to love your neighbor, don't use risk as an excuse to hold back. But that's not all this detour took. It wasn't just a risk. He also, it it was a detour that took personal involvement. Oh, we went from preaching to meddling now. Uh, Personal involvement, right? When the Samaritan sees this wounded man, he doesn't go over to the other side of the road. Instead, he has compassion for him. He bandages up his wounds, perhaps using his own coverings or by tearing strips off of his own garments. He pours on oil and wine on the wounds. I, I mean, He's doing everything that he can. This traveling Samaritan wasn't afraid to get personally involved. Unfortunately, 65-year-old Clive Collins didn't have someone like the Samaritan around. 
Clive Collins was opening his car trunk in a parking lot in Boscombe, England, when the manhole cover tipped and down he went, fell down five uh, feet into this hole. Collins told the BBC News, probably about 15 to 20 people walk by, and the more I called out, the less they seemed to notice me. What surprised me is that they didn't even make eye contact. A woman actually parked alongside my camper, put the hood up of her car, and I said, can you please call me an ambulance? And she refused to acknowledge the fact that I was even there. Collins said one shopper did acknowledge him but did nothing to help. Another chap, he said, I love how they speak, chap, one chap looked straight at me in his car, driving very slowly by, and I waved, and he waved back and went on his business. Despite suffering broken ribs and many other issues, he managed to get his phone out of his pocket and call 999, which, if you're ever traveling in England, is their version of 911. He needed 47 stitches, treatment for two broken ribs, chipped tooth, and a strained groin, among other things. The BBC didn't report on whether most of the shoppers were priests and Levites, but there were apparently no Samaritans nearby. Some people use the excuse of not wanting to get personally involved to help someone in need, but the Samaritan wouldn't do that. He didn't wait for somebody else. He didn't just call 911. He didn't just phone the minister or anything like that. He didn't just write a check. No, he got involved. He was moved with compassion toward action. He got in the ditch with the man. He got close enough and he bandaged the man's wound and he probably, you know what? He probably came out of the ditch looking dirty and bloody too. If you're going to love your neighbor, Don't use personal involvement as an excuse to hold back. This detour was also a detour that took time. The Samaritan didn't use a time schedule as an excuse not to help. He took the time to stop. And then he slowed his progress by putting this guy on his own animal. There wasn't an emergency room where he could take care of this guy. And so he took him to a hotel and cared for him that night and Then gave two more days just in case the guy needed it. Said, I'll take care of any needs beyond that. Sometimes we use our busy schedules to justify not helping people in need. In fact, if I had to guess, this may be the most frequent one. This may be the one we use most. I don't have time. I know I've used it. And I kick myself, and I, and I want to punch my own self in the face sometimes because I'm so busy doing the work of God that I forgot to do the work of God. When it comes to helping those in need, loving your neighbor, the greatest availability, the greatest ability is availability. And so if you're going to love your neighbor, don't use time as an excuse to hold back. We could talk about a whole lot more, but let's finish with one more. This was a divine detour that took risk, it took personal involvement, it took time, and it took money. It took money. It did. If you read between the lines, it seems that the Samaritan was a merchant who regularly traveled this road. Uh, the, the, inn, the innkeeper seemed to know the guy. There seems to be some level of trust, right? He promises the innkeeper who knows him that he'll reimburse him any additional costs when he comes back the other way. You see, he didn't use the lack of resources as an opportunity not, or an excuse not to act. 
And sometimes we do that. We, we justify not helping because it's going to hit our pocketbooks. And the Samaritan wouldn't do that. He made financial sacrifices to help two denarii, two silver coins. That's two days worth of wages that this guy gives up to this man he didn't even know. And he said to the innkeeper, I'll take care of any extra expenses when I return. Do you know how expensive those little mini Cokes are in the mini bar at a mini refrigerator at a hotel? He was really to pay it all. Margaret Thatcher once said, no one would have remembered the good Samaritan if he only had good intentions. Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, verse 36, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Let's look at this whole package together. Did Jesus answer the question, who is my neighbor, by telling this story? Of course he did. He said, a neighbor isn't necessarily someone who lives next door to you. Your neighbor is anyone in need. Your neighbor is anyone you can help. There's a passage in Acts chapter 4, verse 34, you're going to hear a whole lot more. Uh, in that first century church, as the church gets started, as it gets going... Acts 4.34, you've heard Trey say it, you've heard me say it, let me say it again. There were no needy people among them. And you might think it's impossible to recreate that, is it? Because last I checked, what's impossible with us is possible with God. There were no needy people among them. Did Jesus answer the question, who's, yes. He said, the person in need, isn't, the neighbor isn't the person next door to you necessarily. It's the one who has a need. But notice, let's finish this because Jesus takes it a step further. Look at verse 36 and 37. He asks this question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus says it again, then you go and do the same thing. You go and do likewise. In other words, Jesus changes the focus from the question, who is my neighbor? Jesus asks the question, what kind of neighbor are you? This is what Jesus does at the end of this. This is what he throws at the nomikos. This is what he throws at the expert. What kind of neighbor are you? And so I throw Jesus' question to you. What kind of neighbor are you? If you were beaten up and left for dead on the side of a road, would you want yourself to show up on the scene? Can I ask that question? Would you stay on your normal route or would you take a divine detour because Jesus says that loving God and loving others, that's the path to eternal life. It's not about a head full of knowledge as important and as good as that is. It's about a life full of action. The good Samaritan disadvantaged himself so that someone else could be advantaged. And as Christ followers, you and I, we have the privilege to do the same thing. We have the privilege to disadvantage ourselves so that we can advantage others. Our spiritual journey calls us beyond managing our to-do lists and instead to live a faith in action lifestyle that welcomes divine detours, that welcomes opportunities to demonstrate God's love to people in need. The question is, are you on that journey? Are you on that journey? 
This week, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to get off your normal beaten path of life. It doesn't have to be something gigantic. It can be, but it doesn't have to be. Visit someone. Take someone some spaghetti. Uh, volunteer to watch or babysit for some of these parents that we had up here last Sunday night. Write something to a letter, uh, a letter to a soldier overseas. Pray your heart out. Do something. Don't just fill it up here. Fill it up out there. Then you will love your neighbor. Then you will, you, you will be doing exactly what Jesus says. So how about it? How about it? Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this incredible parable. We are so grateful for the Good Samaritan and the example that this story tells us about how you see people and how you want us to move, not just to know, but to move and to act and to do. Father, may we be a doing church, not just a church that takes it all in, not just a church that learns more and learns more and learns more and never does, but instead a church that puts our faith into action every single day. God, may it be so in the name of Jesus Christ. May we be that church. May there be no needy among us. And when needs come in front of us, God, give us the courage, the boldness, the heart, the resources, everything that we need to meet those needs so that Acts 4.34 can become a reality again in your church. Father, we love you. We're thankful for the greatest gift, the one that got down in the ditch with us and helped us when it looked hopeless. And that's Jesus, and we're thankful for what he's done for us, what he's accomplished on the cross, and we pray now in Jesus' name that we would go and do likewise to those around us. Walk with us, give us courage, and in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If you are in North Alabama, we would love to have you visit and worship with us. Also, if this lesson blessed you today, don't forget to hit the share button and share this message with someone else. Hope you will join us again next week. As we close, here is our prayer for you. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Have a great week.